Hello and welcome to episode 108 of Onion Unlimited Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Torridon. In this episode, I'm going to talk about teaching. Why should everyone not be a teacher? And why I think some people are chronic teachers. There's a scripture in the Bible in James chapter 3, verse 1, which, even though I'm not a 100% Bible-believing Christian anymore, I do tend to think makes a lot of sense. Not many of you should become teachers. He's talking about uh, teachers within the Christian congregation. So we're talking about the overseers, those that shepherd and teach the so-called flock of God. James says that not many within the congregation should be teachers because those who teach will be judged more strictly. He then follows it on in verse 2 by making the observation that we all stumble in many ways and anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, which of course is not the case. Everybody trips up in what they say. Sometimes we will say things and afterwards think, oh, that wasn't that wasn't right, you know, and it's the humble person that will correct what they said. Like I say, I do tend to agree with those sentiments. But when it comes to Jehovah's Witnesses, their congregations, when it comes to teachers within their congregations, the elders I'm thinking of here, and particularly the governing body as well, who are in the limelight these days on JW Broadcasting, I don't think many that I've met over the years are actually very good teachers at all. Most elders that I've met are pretty chronic teachers, to be honest. Uh, Their talks are boring. You fall asleep in them, very often in a monotone. Uh, They don't use illustrations or stories or really go into any depth. They just can't basically just read the outline that they're given by the governing body. The governing body themselves as well, I think, are... Pretty poor teachers, as as a general rule. Got Stephen Lett, who just makes me cringe. The way that his facial mannerisms and gestures are so affected, so unnatural. People have tried to excuse that by saying that his parents were deaf, but you know you <laughs> you don't speak to a deaf person in that manner. Not not to that degree. Not that affected. You've got uh, Tony Morris. He just always seems angry. He always seems to enjoy scaring the audience (laughs) with uh, tales of death and destruction. Generally speaking, I think, I mean, I reached a point as a Jehovah's Witness, I just couldn't listen to the governing body anymore because I just found it boring, uh, cringeworthy. And unfortunately, these are the ones that are, you know, the teachers within Jehovah's Witnesses. So when it comes to myself... I need to be very careful when I say that uh, I do consider myself a teacher and I don't want that to sound arrogant or proud. The reason I say that I consider myself a teacher is that very early on as a Jehovah's Witness, not long after my baptism at the age of 16, it became apparent very quickly that teaching was kind of my, my bag, my thing. Right from the age of 16, I was taking uh, ministry groups several times a week giving many, many different volunteer talks on the what was known as the Theocratic Ministry School at the time. 
I continued to pay attention to my teaching. I really did work on my teaching, meticulously so, to try and make it as as uh, as good as I possibly could. When I was appointed as a ministerial servant in my early 20s, people used to really commend me for my, my teaching. Even as a ministerial servant, I was invited several times a month quite often to go out and give public talks at other congregations. You know, word got round that I gave a... Uh, a decent public talk. I do think at the time I was rather script bound. I used to write my notes out in full and everything was timed right down to when I would insert a gesture or, you know, when I would inflect my voice up or down. And even though my talks were interesting, lively, informative, I think, uh, entertaining, even which I was <laughs> always being told I shouldn't entertain the brothers and sisters. I think they were somewhat affected. And in the early days, I did used to fall into the trap of trying to mimic some of my favourite teachers. So if we got a particularly good teacher come to the congregation, maybe a circuit overseer, I found myself mirroring uh, some of their mannerisms and things like that, which wasn't really very unique but over time I did manage to find my own my own groove when it came to teaching the thing that really helped me as a teacher was I moved away from notes and I started using mind maps instead so instead of written notes I'll just basically have the ideas in uh, picture form in front of me and then I'd just kind of chat to the audience and it became a lot more natural I think and I also used to rely very heavily on the Bible as well. So I would uh, actually use my Bible as my notes quite often. I remember once I gave a talk on um, Proverbs chapter 3. Basically, it was a verse-by-verse -verse discussion of Proverbs chapter 3. And I just had a few rough notes and little drawings scribbled in the margin of my Bible. And it seemed to me that I didn't even really need a rostrum. You know how Jehovah's Witnesses stand behind a podium when they speak from the platform. So I asked that the podium be uh, taken completely out of the way. And I just stood on that platform uh, with just a microphone and nothing more between me and the audience other than uh, a microphone and my Bible in my hand. And uh, I spoke for 45 minutes, it was back then. The general audience loved it. They loved the naturalness of it. They loved the way that I stuck to the Bible in my teaching. The elders of my congregation weren't so impressed. For some reason, they sort of had it in their head that having a rostrum in front of you was a rule <laughs> that you shouldn't be so informal as to just stand there and speak to your audience. I referred them back to the fact that Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Watchtower Bible Tract Society, he, he never used a rostrum. In fact, he used to walk up and down the, uh, the platform when he was speaking to his audiences, much as uh, some of these Christian evangelical types do today. So they weren't very happy in, in that at all. And I got counselled for, I don't know, drawing attention to myself again, probably. But interestingly, the next week, Circuit Overseer came and the elders had obviously told him about me and uh, how I'd done this unthinkable thing of teaching from the platform without a rostrum. And the Circuit Overseer, his very first talk that week, he uh, moved the rostrum out of the way and stood there and uh, gave this wonderfully uh, natural engaging talk to the audience with no rostrum so there you go up yours <laughs> to the uh, to the elders yeah very early on I, I kind of 
got into teaching and, you know, the general consensus was that that was my role within the congregation. I, I was a good teacher. I was a regular pioneer for most of my life. As a Jehovah's Witness, I used to uh, love doing uh, Bible studies with people, although I didn't always like sticking to the book that we were supposed to be studying. I always used to enjoy much more coming back to the Bible and digging into the Bible stories and illustrations and Greek words and all this kind of thing. I was a pioneer. I was uh, an elder uh, for part of my time as a Jehovah's Witness uh, teaching people. And of course, I also taught my children and our family worship evenings were really quite something. I used to quite often spend probably eight to 10 hours in preparation before each family worship study on a Tuesday night. And we studied all kinds of things. We studied uh, over 13 weeks, we studied the complete history of Jerusalem. And I created all these charts and videos and diagrams and all kinds of things just to help the children to understand what the Bible was, was teaching. It's quite interesting as well, because I always did try and stick to the Bible as much as possible. And it often was very apparent when I was teaching that what the Bible said was not actually the official stance of the uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower. My dad used to come to our family worship studies after my mum died in uh, 2015, I think it was. And another sister in the congregation used to come along, an elderly sister who, who was living alone. And uh, for a brief period of time as well, we had a um, a younger sister come along with her two two young children. Plus, there was my uh, wife and uh, my my four children. So it was really quite packed. It was like a little meeting. And I still remember one occasion when I was I was talking about Jerusalem's destruction, and I read a scripture in Jeremiah and put it up on the on the TV screen so everyone could see it. And it, it read along the lines that uh, when the 70 years had been fulfilled, then I will bring to account the king of Babylon. And, uh, of course, the witnesses teach that the 70 years ended in 537 because they run it from 607, which they say, and only they say, is uh, the year that Jerusalem was destroyed, 607 to 537. That's there. That's what they interpret the seven, 70 years to, to mean. But it's a well-known fact, and the witnesses even agree in the Watchtower magazine, that the king of Babylon was taken to account in 539. And here Jeremiah was saying when the 70 years had been fulfilled or completed, at that point the king of Babylon would be called to account. So uh, there's an obvious discrepancy there between what the Bible clearly said and and what the Watchtower was teaching. And I still remember one of the sisters that attended that family worship actually said to me, well, she, first of all, she picked up on it and said, hmm, that's back to front to what the Watchtower teaches. And then she actually asked me outright uh, after the study in private, did I believe that 1914 was correct? And I remember saying, um <laughs> I've got to be careful because I don't want to get disfellowshipped again <laughs> for apostasy. But no, I don't believe 1914 is correct. And uh, she indicated that she had her doubts as well. So when it came to teaching, I was always trying to err on the side of what the Bible taught, not what the Watchtower taught or the, um, the witnesses in general. But, you know, if uh, if the Watchtower was teaching something true that matched the Bible, absolutely, I would use JW resources to, to prove the point uh, from the Bible. Yeah, my, my skills as a teacher, I think over 
some uh, 35 years uh, or more, up to the age of uh, 50 something, when I left Jehovah's Witnesses, I really did perfect my skills as best as I could when it came to teaching and probably why I've got into uh, podcasting as well. Yeah, I don't think uh, all teachers should be teachers. I think there's some absolute chronic teachers in Jehovah's Witnesses, but I do I do think there are some good ones as well. I've met some excellent teachers over the years, elders and circuit overseers alike. And even, um, even <laughs> I say, even the sisters. Some of the sisters were absolutely fantastic teachers when you went on Bible studies with them or... But uh, of course, being sisters, they're not always recognised. So that's the um, that's the Watchtower organisations teaching how I kind of got into teaching, and then of course, I started to realise that some of the things I was teaching, particularly things that I was teaching that the Watchtower was saying were true, were not indeed true, and that started to bother my conscience. So. Um, I found myself in a position of what we call cognitive dissonance, where I was supposed to teach one way, but I actually believe something completely different. So that started to interfere with things a bit. It affected my mental health, definitely. And uh, I found myself sort of tiptoeing around things, uh, walking on eggshells, so as not to openly say anything that was in contravention to what the Watchtower was teaching. But I did push it to the limits sometimes in my answers and in my talks. And sometimes people would come up to me afterwards and say, where did you get that from? And uh, what I did find was if I turned to a scripture and showed it to them, that didn't usually suffice. But if I turned to a watchtower that said what I just said, even if it was something really spurious from like years and years ago that hasn't, hadn't been uh, updated with new truth, um, if, if the watchtower said it, that was fine. But if the Bible said it, that wasn't good enough. That used to bother me. And then, of course, I reached the point where I decided I was no longer going to be a Jehovah's Witness. I'd already been disfellowshipped, but I was trying to get back, trying to get reinstated until finally I realised, you know what? I don't actually believe Jehovah's Witnesses are the truth. And I decided I wasn't going back. Now, at that point, I was still very much a Christian, a Bible believer, but I started to review my beliefs en masse, everything that I believed all the things I'd been taught by Jehovah's Witnesses and all the things I'd read in the Bible. And I started to realise that not only did I not believe that Jehovah's Witnesses were the truth, I also didn't believe the entire Bible. When you're a Jehovah's Witness, you basically have to take the entire Bible lock, stock and barrel as the 100% truth from God, inerrant word of God, inspired. But uh, it dawned on me that the Bible is actually made up, first of all, of some 66 books, even more if you're a Catholic. So you've got all these individual books, Bible, it's actually a library of books, not just one book. And even the books themselves are not necessarily written by just one author. Some books are little libraries in themselves. Uh, You think of the Psalms, for example. And it just dawned on me that, you know, why should we take the entire Bible as being the word of God, why not break it down and look at each book individually or even sections from each book individually and see if those words marry up with your personal experience of what seems to be true. And that's when I started to really consider truth as something that is a personal experience. It's all very well people teaching you what's true, telling you what's true, even forcing you to believe what is true at the threat of uh, sanctions. But when it comes to belief, believing what is true, you can really only believe what you believe. I know that sounds obvious, but belief is something very personal, something that 
you know, if you're not careful, you can find that you don't actually believe something. You're just accepting it and going along with a current view purely because you don't want to cause cause waves. So I started to look a lot more within myself. And I remember a particular quote by uh, Buddha who said, uh, do not believe in anything simply because you've heard it. Do not believe in anything simply because it is spoken and rumoured by many. Do not believe in anything simply because it is found written in your religious books. He even said not to believe anything that uh, he himself taught his uh, followers, but only that which makes sense, that resonates with their common sense. And that's kind of where I got to when it came to truth. I started looking very much within myself for the answers and piecing things together as to what I thought was the truth in terms of God and the universe and my self-identity and life and death. And uh, in doing so, not only did the the watchtower find itself thrown out very quickly, but I, I suddenly found that there were certain sections of, of the uh, Bible that I could no longer subscribe to as well. And so today, when it comes to the Bible itself, I do find some parts useful. I mean, I started this podcast with a verse from the Bible, but I don't live by the Bible completely because there are sections of the Bible I think are ridiculous. And there's other sections I think are actually immoral. So um, I don't go along with those things and I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't teach them. So I guess that leads me to where I'm at now with regards to uh, teaching. Now, I do still consider myself a teacher. I do think once a teacher, always a teacher. Um, you don't just suddenly lose that gift or that ability because you know you've you've changed your views on something or you've left an organisation that you were a teacher for. I'm still very much a teacher, and uh, my purpose in life, I feel, is twofold. It's to be creative, and it's also to teach. Although these days, rather than teach, I prefer to use the word guide. Spiritual teacher, yes, I am still a spiritual teacher, and I think certain people recognise me as such. But I would say a spiritual guide is more where I'm at these days. I certainly know what I believe, and I'm very happy to explain what I believe and why I believe it when it comes to important questions like God and the universe and life and death, the big spiritual questions. But I would prefer to guide people to find the truth themselves, to look within. I do honestly believe that you don't need anybody telling you what to believe. You you can find the answers within yourself. So my role as a spiritual guide is these days less about telling people what they should believe and more about showing them how to actually assess their own beliefs. I do like to make people think. I do like to not only tell on my podcast why I believe certain things, but even investigate opposing views. Sometimes I do like to do that. Although I must say that uh, when it comes to Jehovah's Witnesses, I these days am tending not to get so sucked back in because I have pretty much proved to myself that it's false. Any attempts now to try and prove it true to me are pretty much falling on deaf ears. And I don't want that to sound as if I'm closed minded. I'm not. And I haven't been for 50 something years, but there does come a point in your life when you just know that something is um, rubbish. <laughs> so why spend any more time, you know, trying to make a silk purse out of a uh, pig's ear, so to speak? Yes, very much these days when it comes to teaching, I'm looking within myself and I'm encouraging anybody that follows my podcasts or my Twitter feed 
to look within to find the answers within rather than relying on an organisation or even a Bible to tell you what you should or shouldn't believe to be the truth. Something I was talking to uh, Mariella, my girlfriend, this week about. When I used to conduct the uh, family Bible studies, and my dad used to be in attendance, my dad used to say to me that my understanding and knowledge, comprehension of the Bible was the best he'd ever come across in his 80 years of uh, being a Jehovah's Witness. He even said on one occasion that my teaching ability and my knowledge of the Bible was even better, far surpassing his own dad, my granddad, who apparently was an excellent teacher and a really, really good uh, Bible student. I found that that really nice. Um, that, that was a lovely compliment to be paid by my own dad. Um, my girlfriend had similar compliment paid to her. She's also a very good teacher, very good researcher, very good at reasoning on spiritual things. But we both said the same thing. Although we were commended at the time for being really good teachers and researchers when it came to spiritual things within the organisation, knowing our Bibles somewhat better than most. As soon as we left the organisation and we start saying, Do you know what, the Bible isn't true, the Watchtower isn't true in these areas, Immediately, people change their opinion of you as a teacher. They start uh, basically saying, you know, you've lost the plot and uh, or you're an apostate. A false teacher, which strikes me as very strange, the fact that whatever you're teaching things that they already feel are correct, then you're a great teacher. But as soon as um, <laughs> you're teaching something that goes against what they're being told is true by the governing body again, immediately they start questioning you not just what you're teaching, but you as an individual. You are now a false teacher, an apostate, a bad person trying to lead people astray. In actual fact, all you're trying to do is teach what you know or feel to be true. That's all you're doing. And just because it doesn't match what the witnesses are teaching doesn't mean that all of a sudden you've become a false teacher or a uh, or a bad person. And it's interesting, when I first left Jehovah's Witnesses, I felt very much like a rug had been pulled out from under my feet. I'd lost my social network, my family. But one thing that I really missed was the uh, the platform to teach. You know, I was no longer a pioneer. I was no longer an elder. I was um, no longer able to give talks on platform to hundreds of people or... Um, to go on Bible studies, you know, it just suddenly felt like I'd been silenced and I no longer had any way to teach people anything. And so that's why initially I set up the uh, Onion Unlimited podcast, partly to get my story out. I wanted to document what had happened to me as a Jehovah's Witness. Um, but I also wanted a platform where I could not just say why Jehovah's Witnesses weren't true, in my opinion, and not just to keep harping on about the bad things that happened to me as a Jehovah's Witness, but also moving forward to actually provide a platform, a framework within which I could actually teach again, particularly spiritual things. I do tend to talk about other things like the universe and quantum physics and uh, such things, but uh, quite often my subject matter comes back to the spiritual, God, the mind, the self and so forth. And the ironic thing is, although I wouldn't say I've particularly got a massive following on YouTube or my podcast channel, there are more people listening to me now and what I have to say as a teacher, as a spiritual guide, than have ever listened to me. And the nice thing is, I'm not just 
repeating things that they already know or trying to frame things in a way where, you know, it's a lot more interesting than it really is. These days I can actually talk about really interesting things uh, and I can actually talk about and teach things that are perhaps new to people. They've, they've never come across it. Whereas as a Jehovah's Witness, as an elder, particularly, you're just, as a teacher, you're just repeating the same old, same old, week in, week out, week in, week out. And there's really no need for it. You know, once people have learned something, they don't need to keep being told the same thing over and over again. Once it's become part of their very fibre, they know it, you know. But uh, Jehovah's Witnesses do keep repeating the same thing over and over again because it's all part of the indoctrination process. All the while you're being told the same thing over and over and over and over again. You never really get a chance to unplug and sort of step aside and think, is that really true or not? It is a form of mind control brainwashing even. Notably, one thing that made Jesus um, an excellent teacher, according to the scriptures, was the fact that he taught with authority and not as one of the scribes. And what that meant was Jesus was looked upon as a rabbi, a teacher. That's all that means. And he wasn't like the other rabbis. The other rabbis of the day would always refer to a more important rabbi than themselves. They'd always like to name drop. Rabbi so-and-so says this, that, and the other, and that would give them their authority. Jesus didn't do that. He just used to speak what he felt was the truth. And he spoke with authority because what he what he taught was what he genuinely believed. I try to do that in my teaching. Um, sometimes I do refer back to a Bible verse or a verse from the Upanishads or various quotes of well-respected people. But generally speaking, I just like to say what I believe is true. And if it resonates with you, great. You know, if it doesn't, and I'm not trying to, to force an issue or make you believe a certain thing. I don't believe that's ethical or even possible, actually. I think when you get forced to believe something, you don't really believe it. You just accept it. I think belief is something that uh, you come to when, you, when you've when you thought about a matter, maybe when you've considered differing opinions, when you've done some research, you actually come to a belief that you genuinely do believe within yourself. That, I think, is... Uh, what truth is all about, to learn new things, to continue to assess where you stand on on different things. I must admit, having left Jehovah's Witnesses now, it is a big relief for me not to have to go along to meetings and listen to really bad teachers repeating the same old rubbish over and over and over again. Those monotonous, boring meetings that just send you into some sort of hypnotic state due to the monotony of it. And the nice thing from a personal perspective running the Onion Unlimited podcast is that it has a fairly wide reach, not necessarily in terms of numbers, but definitely in terms of different types of people that listen to my podcast. There are ex-witnesses that listen. There are ones that are currently witnesses, are questioning things and uh, trying to figure out whether they believe Jehovah's Witnesses have the truth or not. Sometimes I get people that have never been witnesses, Christians, atheists, all kinds of people that send me uh, direct messages and leave me comments. And one of the nice things is they actually ask me questions as to matters pertaining to truth. In a future podcast, I am going to discuss with you some of the questions I've been asked recently by some of my listeners and the answers that I've given, which I've given out of my own 
my own feelings, my own thoughts on things. I'm not just parroting what somebody else has said, but uh, it's quite nice, I find, to be asked a question by someone who genuinely wants to know what you as a spiritual teacher feel about things. And like I say, I will never try and force it on people, but I, if someone wants to know, I will tell them what I believe to be true. And then, like the Buddha said, if it resonates with you, if it makes common sense to you, accept it. If not, no worries. You don't have to listen to what I'm saying at all. In fact, you could switch off anytime you want. I think I'm a, a pretty decent teacher. I hope I am. It means a lot to me that if I'm teaching, I'm at least, you know, reasonably good at it. I did make a living as a teacher for quite a few years. I was a first aid teacher. So not only did I teach within the organisation, but I also had a formal qualification in teaching and teaching a particular subject. What I particularly like about teaching is not so much the fact that the spotlight is on you, as in uh, you're performing to people, although I do quite enjoy that as well when it comes to performing music live. Um, What I like about teaching is being able to boil down some of the most complicated or potentially complicated subjects down to something very, very simple. It's a really fulfilling moment when you look at your student or students in a classroom and you just see the light bulb moment where they get it. It's like you're empowering people. Now, quite often I I used to have people come to a first aid course dreading it, thinking that they just wouldn't be able to take in the knowledge or they wouldn't be able to apply the knowledge in the practical sessions. And by the end of the, uh, by the end of the courses, they'd be going away walking on air thinking that they've really learned something. Uh, something of value, something of use, and it really boosts their confidence that they were able to assimilate the information and actually actually make some practical use of it. So that's probably the biggest reason I like teaching is the way that it empowers people with the knowledge and the understanding and, and basically helps them to live their life in a different, hopefully better way than they were prior to uh, being taught. Something I don't like when it comes to the teaching student relationship is when you've got students that come into the class, let's say it's a first aid training class, and they come in not wanting to learn. Worse, sometimes I've had people that have come into a learning environment where they've actually approached it, that they already know everything that there is to know on the subject, and they challenge you at every point. Now, I'm not saying students shouldn't ask questions if something doesn't make sense or or if it it seems wrong to them you know by all means ask questions but people that are very confrontational that come into a a learning environment where they've got absolutely no desire whatsoever to learn anything new or to learn about a subject they know better than everybody else in the room i've had that a few times within the first aid environment interestingly nine times out of ten it was when doing first aid training for Jehovah's Witnesses. I used to do all of the training for the um, regional and circuit assemblies for first aid coverage. And when I was doing first aid training for a company, for example, um, people generally, they weren't necessarily too keen about going on a first aid course, at least to start with, but they generally approached it that they were there to learn. Whereas what I found quite often with teaching Jehovah's Witnesses, and it was particularly with elders uh, that I was trying to teach, is they felt they were the teachers. And um, 
they weren't there to learn anything. That used to be really off-putting. Uh, I do remember one particular first day course where there was this elder that kept on challenging everything I said. Again, not in a not in a positive criticism kind of way. It was literally just a confrontation or I don't think that's right because... And we're talking about set standards here, things that the, the health and safety uh, legislation um, legislated. He, he was going in direct opposition to that, saying, I don't agree with that. You know, I think we should do it this way. And I basically had to put my foot down eventually. And so well, if you do do it that way, I'm not going to be able to sign your certificate at the end of the day. <laughs> so you'll have wasted, you know, six hours on this first aid course and you'll be going away with nothing to show for it. The the funny thing was, what I found was when I stood up to him like that in front of the class, because he was he was doing this publicly, not privately, this was all in front of the class. When I stood up to him publicly in front of the class and put him in his place, from that moment on, he seemed to develop a particular respect for me, which was rather strange. And I actually ended up doing quite a lot of first aid training for his company in the end, because he put a good word in for me with his uh, with his boss. <laughs> What's nice as a teacher, particularly in environments like that, you do actually sometimes come away being the one that's actually learnt something, which is quite nice as well. The ironic thing is that even people, for example, like GPs, um, I had a GP, a general practitioner, doctor, on one of my courses. As a GP, he had to have a first aid uh, certificate but his gp practice um didn't do that for him he had to go and arrange that privately so i actually had a gp on my first aid course on one occasion and another occasion i actually had a heart surgeon (laughs) on my first aid course that was quite interesting because one of my lessons was all about the heart i'd always felt quite confident up to that point that what i was teaching was accurate had all these diagrams of the heart and how they worked and I made it very interesting and interactive with the students. But when you've got a heart surgeon sitting there judging your every word, (laughs) I kept looking across to this guy and have I got that right? (laughs) And uh, he was lovely actually all the way through saying, yeah, absolutely. You've got that right. It gave me a lot of confidence that what I was teaching was well-researched and accurate. But even then I learned some uh, particularly good things from that heart surgeon because there were there was obviously things that he knew that went way beyond any kind of first aid training certificate that he might have needed as an NHS worker. But like I say, it's, uh, it's often a completely different kettle of fish when you're uh, trying to teach <laughs> teachers as in elders. They do seem to think that they're God's gift to a teaching and uh, in my view, absolutely not. For the most part, most elders are pretty bad teachers i would say and they don't they don't seem interested in teaching they don't particularly seem interested in improving their teaching which is something that i've always um, for myself i enjoy it getting better at something whether it's playing the guitar or playing a keyboard or making music or writing poetry or painting or photography there's always something to learn and uh, the more you, the more you learn i believe the more you can uh, you can teach and guide others I just know from personal experience how affected I've been by teachers in my life. I went to a particular secondary school where my maths teacher told me that I would never pass a maths exam. I would never amount to anything when it came to mathematics. And she was kind of right when I was her student. But then I moved to another school and 
I had a completely new teacher that taught me mathematics and the way he did it was really creative and engaging and, and fun even. And not only did I get very good at mathematics, I actually managed to pass my mathematics exam one year early. And I put a lot of that down to the way I was taught, the way I was shown how maths and, and numbers and equations and formulas and so on work. Um, the same with English as well. I had uh, an absolutely fantastic English teacher who um, I was in a class of people that weren't really bothered. They weren't they weren't bothered learning about English at all. Most of the class had just messed around. Um, but she could see that, you know, I wanted to learn. I was interested in, in literature and uh, poetry and writing. I'd always been interested in creative writing right from being a a small child, and she singled me out and actually gave me a copy of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, which uh, I devoured. And from reading that book, I actually developed much more of a love for reading, I think. I'd always enjoyed reading. I'd always been quite a good reader, but that teacher really helped me to appreciate how much you can learn from reading, whether it's a period novel or what I prefer to read these days is more factual things, more non-fiction. I like to learn when I read, and that all goes back to that particular teacher. What always used to make me laugh was the fact that uh, a lot of the elders that were really bad teachers thought they were really good teachers, and they really pushed themselves forward as teachers trying to uh, get themselves into the teaching pool, as it was, uh, those that would be used not only for uh, public talks, but things like circuit and uh, regional convention talks. And a lot of times they were chosen not so much on their teaching abilities, but just by whether or not they stuck to the outlines, I suppose, and, and walked the uh, the party line when it came to teaching uh, watchtower teachings. But it just always used to amaze me. It was the ones that used to push themselves forward as teachers were often some of the worst possible teachers going, which is why I hesitate to say that I feel I am a good teacher. I hope I am a good teacher. For that reason, really, the fact that quite often the ones that thought they were good teachers were absolutely chronic. I don't really want to draw attention to the fact that I'm a teacher, but like I say, more of a more of a guide. But I have put a lot of work into teaching over the years. I really have. I've studied no end of books on the subjects, uh, not just Watchtower publications, but all kinds of other public speaking uh, books. One of the uh, best ones I ever read, actually, was by the famous writer Dale Carnegie about effective public speaking. That was an absolutely excellent book. He was the guy that wrote the book uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Of course, the Theocratic Ministry School was, uh, to be fair, actually very good in teaching people to be good speakers. And I, I don't think a lot of the uh, the elders uh, and even the governing body um, in their teaching, I don't think they've particularly taken taken advantage of the theocratic ministry school itself because uh, a lot of times I see some really bad teaching techniques or no teaching techniques at all being used by some of the most prominent speakers within the organisation. But I found the Theocratic Ministry School very good and I know quite a few other ex-witnesses, ones that have left the organisation, have also, you know, these are ones that go on to uh, do podcasts and uh, YouTube videos and 
quite often they credit the theocratic ministry school as the reason why they are able to do that effectively. And there are actually some very good, I think, ex-Jehovah's Witness uh, speakers, podcasters and YouTubers out there. Bear in mind as well, ones like myself that had been witnesses in the organisation for 50-something years, we actually started very early on being taught how to read and how to teach and how to stand in front of an audience, engage them, use gestures and so on. I mean, my, myself, I was just four years old when I gave my very first uh, very first talk. And uh, it wasn't just a Bible reading like they are now, uh, just a two-minute Bible reading. Back then, when I was four years old, when you gave the Bible reading, you actually had to give uh, an introduction and a conclusion, an effective conclusion. You read the Bible bit in the middle, and you even could interject with little comments along the way as you were reading. And the Bible readings were, I think, six minutes at the time. So, you know, I was four years old doing that. And um, I suppose that really, that's really where I cut my teeth on teaching. And I did enjoy it. I used to get very nervous at first. When I was a little kid, my eyes used to water so badly when I was doing a Bible reading, I could barely see the page. And there's one occasion I actually wet myself on the platform, which was a, that was a story uh, told in one of my other podcasts. Rather embarrassing. I think I was only about five at the time. As I got a bit older, um, I found that my eyes stopped watering, but my, my hands used to go ice cold, like frozen. I could barely move my hands. And, uh, even as even as I was uh, even as I got into being a ministerial servant, at first I used to get quite nervous before I gave a talk. Particularly the first sort of five minutes or so, I'd be very nervous. And prior to the talk, I'd often spend a lot of time on the toilet <laughs> beforehand. But eventually, I managed to get to the point where not only did I manage to give a talk without seeming nervous, I actually wasn't that nervous in the end. I actually. There's a few nerves before getting up, but uh, I eventually reached a point where I didn't really feel nervous at all giving talks. I felt very comfortable, really enjoyed it. And I think that started to come through, particularly when I stopped using notes. Uh, so I wasn't so tied to my notes. And when I reached a point, I, I knew I'd really mastered, if that's, I don't know if that's uh, overcooking it a bit, but uh, I'll say mastered the art of teaching publicly was when I reached the point where I could actually slow right down in my teaching, and when I was given a talk from the platform, even even at a circuit level, I would be able to look at individuals in the audience, make proper eye contact, and spend a while actually speaking to them, and even responding to looks and you know sort of feedback from the actual audience itself. You know, if they looked like they didn't get it or they were a bit maybe they weren't sort of sure they agreed with what I just said. You know, I could actually respond to that and, and flesh things flesh things out a little bit. Interestingly, Kylie Minogue actually once said, you know, the singer, the Australian singer, that when she does a concert, she always likes to make everyone feel that they've been seen and noticed. Not quite sure how you do that when you've got several thousand people there. But certainly when you're giving a talk to an audience of maybe a hundred, it's uh, completely possible as you're giving your 45 minute long or now 30 minute long public talk to actually look at the actual audience members and make some kind of actual connection with them on a level where they actually feel that you're talking to them. That's definitely something that comes, I think, with time, particularly the, the, the time that you spend uh, perfecting your art of teaching, as I used to like to call it. 
sometimes uh, when I'm doing my podcast, I will actually have a transcript that I've written out beforehand, particularly if the subject is quite a detailed one, where I need to get the facts uh, very accurate. But uh, this particular podcast, for example, no script at all. I'm literally just sat here talking off the top of my head, saying what's what thoughts come into my head uh, as naturally as I possibly can make it, uh, which explains why there's quite a few ums and errs sometimes, which uh, when you're a Jehovah's Witness, you're encouraged not to use what they call word whiskers. But I don't know. I think sometimes a few word whiskers here and there actually make for a much more natural, uh, engaging uh, talk, as if you're having a conversation with someone rather than just being lectured to. Sometimes I find some of the most fluent speakers actually lose their audience because they're not natural enough. You know, it does sound like they're reading to you, which I I don't think is really a particularly good way of teaching. I know some people within the congregation just are not naturally born teachers and they absolutely hate it due to the nerves. Um, And I I actually do feel sorry for some of the, uh, the witnesses that are in that position because there is this kind of thought that as a Jehovah's Witness, you should be a teacher. Certainly the brothers are often pushed to be teachers. You know, you're expected to be on the school. If you're not, you're considered the theocratic ministry school, that is. If you're not, you're considered to be by some, you know, rather weak because you're not, you know, you're not looking to expand your teaching ability. Some people just don't have it and they don't want it. They don't want to be teachers. And that feeling that, you know, they have to, that they're pushed into it in order to keep up appearances, I think that can be rather cruel. Sometimes I've seen people giving talks on platforms and you can tell they just do not want to be there. And if they feel like that, their audience isn't really getting much out of it either. Certainly when it comes to theocratic ministry school, that was always viewed as not so much that you were teaching when you were on that. You were actually learning how to teach. That was that was kind of the whole idea to why you would be on the theocratic ministry school. It always used to kind of uh, get me watching... The sisters doing the uh, talks where they were, they weren't talks, they were discussions with another sister on the platform, enacting, doing a Bible study. Once upon a time, some of the subjects that you were given uh, as a sister were, were absolutely ridiculous subjects that would just never come up in conversation. I always used to think, you know, I, I always used to admire the sisters for being able to do those uh, enactments, as it were, because they weren't just dealing with their own nerves or their own notes or whatever to uh, they were also having to worry about the other person whether they were going to say the right thing at the right time sometimes you'd get a householder that's what they called them a householder that would just come out with something completely unscripted and throw the talk completely off <laughs> and uh, eventually eventually uh, towards the uh, later periods of time just before i left jehovah's witnesses they actually started giving those kind of parts on the meeting to the brothers as well, the men within the congregation. So I started to see firsthand how difficult it was sometimes to choreograph a talk and enactment when you've got, you're depending on the other person to say the right things at the right time. I never used to, as an elder, I never used to like doing interview parts where I'd be on the platform with a row of people, you know, passing the microphone along, asking them questions. I used to get very nervous looking into the whites of their eyes um, at such close quarters. I would much, much rather be stood in the middle of the platform looking out at the audience, whether that's a hundred, a thousand or 10,000 people. I'd much, much rather be doing that than uh, doing a one-to-one enactment or interview on the uh, platform. 
I remember one interview that I gave once as a Jehovah's Witness on a circuit assembly, actually. I was supposed to be interviewing uh, the circuit overseer and his wife. They'd been in the circuit work for many, many years. And at the last minute, just before uh, just before the assembly, the, uh, the circuit overseer died. And uh, I just naturally assumed that, you know, the interview with the uh, with the wife would not go ahead. You know, I mean, he's he's just died. I, mean, I think he died and been buried. It, it was, you know, a few weeks before. But still very raw for this uh, for this sister. But uh, they said, no, 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 we'll, we'll, we're still going to go ahead with it. Uh, you'll just be interviewing just her. So these are the questions that we want you to you to ask her about her time as a circuit overseer's wife and uh, what her husband did and, you know, the experiences. And I thought, this is a really bad idea, bad idea. But uh, she said she was okay with it. She wanted to go ahead with it. And I'm thinking, mm, I'm not comfortable with this. When it actually came to the interview itself, uh, she just broke down in tears on the platform. Uh, I think it was about the second question in, and uh, <laughs> the uh, the part just totally collapsed. Kind of managed to sort of get through it by basically asking the questions and answering them myself. <laughs> she said very very little, um, but after that, <laughs> I, I was forever known as uh, the brother that made the circuit overseer's wife cry publicly on a platform. <laughs> When all is said and done, I guess uh, I guess I'm lucky in a way that I I like teaching. No, I don't just like teaching. I love teaching. I absolutely love teaching. I feel like it's what I'm here to do as much as uh, my creativity. Those two things, teaching and creating things, are I suppose my dharma, my purpose in life. It's what brings me joy and what makes me feel like I've made a difference to other people. So yeah, I love teaching. I have no problem whatsoever standing in front of a very large audience uh, teaching. In fact, I thrive on it. I come alive when I'm teaching other people. That's the reason why I love doing my podcasts. It's just nice to be able to lay everything out in a in a in a format that is logical and easy to understand. I hope that's what I aim aim to do. And if anything that I say, uh, anything that I teach resonates if it makes a difference in somebody's life even better so those are just some of my thoughts on the subject of teaching let me know in the comments whether you uh, whether you like teaching were you a teacher as a jehovah's witness perhaps you were an elder and now you're not how do you teach now have you been affected negatively or positively by a particular teacher that's all for this time join me again soon bye for now